What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to episode 591 with my guest Allie Weiss. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. I'm a uh, guy that tells jokes and uh, talks about his late dog's butthole. A little too much. Maybe I need to deal with that in therapy. And maybe I need to get to the root of what <laughs> what that represents. I don't even I don't even want to know. Uh, a reminder: a week from let's see, this episode drops on uh, tomorrow, the thirteenth of May. On uh, the following Friday, the twentieth of May, I'm going to be in Minneapolis at Sisyphus Brewing. Is it brewery or brewing? I forget. Uh, but at 8 o'clock, we are doing a live podcast recording. My guest is uh, comedian Mary Mack, and uh, I'm looking forward to meeting her and meeting you guys. And I uh, love, love doing live podcast recordings. It's uh, so nice to get back to it. And Sisyphus Brewing is such a great place. Sam, the owner, is uh, a listener to the podcast and uh, has been a guest and uh, it just makes me feel so at home when I'm there. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Betty Spaghetti. Betty, I'm familiar with your spaghetti. Uh, and she says, have you ever done an episode on codependent and volatile friendships and or friendship breakups? While not an uncommon event, it's difficult to find information on this topic. Yes, I googled it when I was going through it, and yes, I am a millennial. Romantic breakups get all the attention despite the fact that friendship breakups can be just as emotionally devastating, can feel like even more of a personal rejection. Uh, and then parentheses, not that it's a competition. That is such a great question. And I don't, I have a terrible memory. So we might have covered that on the podcast, but I'm pretty sure we haven't devoted an episode to it. And uh, as a lot of people have experienced who have been through divorces, sometimes, you know, one person keeps the friends and the other person keeps another set of friends. Um, that, I experienced a little bit of that after after my divorce, and that kind of bummed me out. But I think what you're talking about is more of uh, something that is a kind of a beef between the the, the two people. And um, yeah, that's a great topic for for an episode. And 
that we deal with that topic a lot in the support groups that I go to. Um, you know, obviously we talk about families and stuff like that, but um, I've known more than a few people who have had a lifelong best friend that the relationship just burns out and it's hard. It's hard because it's like you want that person to change or maybe you're the one that's trying to change and you just can't, but um, boundaries, man, boundaries. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Jamie, who is a trans man. And uh, he says uh, to the question, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself that I'm acting silly and foolish, that everyone else definitely knows what's going on. <laughs> I'm the only one not understanding that because I don't understand. I'm really annoying and no one wants to be around me that I'm stupid and the fact that I'm neither good at reading social situations and I'm so horrible at college means that I'm a failure, that I have been weighed I have been measured and I have been found wanting. It would be a better world if I just disappeared. You have your PhD in mean voice, Jamie. Uh, I want to congratulate you on all your hard work. Because that is a steroided up motherfucker you got bouncing between your ears. Wow. I have been weighed, I have been measured, and I have been found wanting fantastic thank you for that jamie this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls calls himself late for work again and he writes we've only known each other for a month but i'm pretty sure that if i keep telling her i love her she'll get out of the quote men's entertainment business unquote as well as leave her husband of 12 years solid plan right solid solid i see no no flaws in it um I think maybe you become her manager. No, I think you and her husband co-manage her. And you do it behind his back. And you live in, in their garage. No, nope, you live above their garage. And their garage, a little too personal. Above their garage like Fonzie. Uh, this is from the uh, love survey filled out by a person who calls himself uh, Laser Bong. I, I never got to smoke a Laser Bong. I can't imagine what the, what that has got to be like. Uh, and they write, I love my pets. I love the tired feeling I get when I've accomplished something big. I love the growth I've seen in myself over the last year. I love music again. I love that I've put in enough work for my mental health that I'm getting into good habits instead of engaging in bad coping mechanisms. And for the first time in my life, I love me. Wow. That is awesome. That is so good. And the fact that you are finding joy in the things that you had stopped finding joy in is such a great sign that you're, you're heading in a good direction. So high five. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I've been using BetterHelp for... God, probably eight years, something like that. And uh, Heidi is my therapist, and we had uh, therapy last uh, Monday. And uh, she's really good at coaxing honesty out of me, uh, sometimes reframing things that I'll say in a way that, you know, uh, will make me look harder 
at what's really going on inside me with ever, without ever putting words into, into my mouth. Um, I, I love a therapist that can help kind of steer you in the direction where you then discover things your, yourselves. And uh, this month, one of the topics uh, BetterHelp is talking about is burnout. Uh, you know, a lot of times we think burnout can only happen at work, but that is not the only cause. And our roles in life, uh, feeling like you got to be everything to everybody, is definitely something that can burn you out. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental part so they know that you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And I actually forgot, can't remember if I mentioned when I talked about the Minneapolis thing that's uh, coming up, but uh, there I will put a link to uh, the information and the tickets on the website. You can also go to Sisyphus Brewing, but um, why is that such a hard word to say, brewing? Brewing. Uh, And then finally, this is from the love survey filled out by Howdy Doody. And they write, I love walking barefoot in soft, spongy grass. Oh, my God, that is one of my favorite feelings in the entire world. Has anybody else ever wanted to fuck on a putting green? Maybe it's just me. I love floating on my back in the ocean, sun in my face, evolving with each wave. I love when someone starts a conversation about something I've just been thinking about. I love winks from the universe, like what I just described, or like when I'm thinking of my late pop and see a blue jay. I love getting a little stoned and mapping out the he- mopping the hell out of the floor. I love getting a lot stoned and watching Monty Python. I fucking love the saying, live, laugh, love, because what else is life about? And I love that in the deepest darkness, all of this love is still true, even if I can't find it. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. 
I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed, but how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like, we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now. You just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I am here with Allie Weiss, who is a, a podcaster, blogger, would you say performer? Yeah. 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 I would say performer. My background is in theater, um, mm. but I am now a slave to the digital space. We yeah. do audio. We do video. I talk to myself, to a camera, you know, yeah. Yeah. all the forms. Allie has a podcast called Tales of, of Taboo, and man, you guys get into some shit yeah. in that one. Yeah. And, uh, as I was as I was listening to it and looking at the titles of the various episodes we, we do a, a survey on the podcast called shame and secret survey yeah and the, the anonymity is people filling them out online but you have people um their audio yeah is talk, people talking about uh having abortions yeah. what, what are some of the other topics that oh my you god guys... how much time do you have it's crazy I, you know i always joke that every time i put out a casting it's going to be the one casting that nobody answers because it's too much that has never happened to me in the entire history that i've been doing this show and the show that i was doing before that too before i rebranded but i've spoken to drug dealers addicts employees of the wealthy escorts nightlife bottle girls um, abortions, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. troubled teens who went to reform schools. I mean, it's just endless, you know? And uh, it, the amount of trust that they put in me to have their voices uh, on the show, despite the fact that they're obviously not including their names or their faces, it's, it's really what gets me out of bed in the morning. Were you surprised, and I'm just going to assume this, but were you surprised by the sense of uh, meaning and purpose you discovered doing that? Yeah, I was. And, you know, don't let me put words in. No, your mouth. no, no, you're completely correct. I mean, it's been a really long journey for me to find a sense of purpose. And granted, I'm still young. I'm 28 turning 29. And I think that I went through the same cycle that normal people in their 20s go through. You work a job, you don't like it, you find a new job, maybe you switch industries, maybe you go to grad school. I did that, but entirely online and through rebranding myself on Instagram and with my podcasts and the type of content that I was making. With my old show, Health is Hell, the concept was not entirely dissimilar from yours. I mm. was uh, talking to comedians and, and performers about their bullshit. Mm. But, you know, pre-pandemic, it was really taboo for a woman, especially a privileged woman, to get on the mic and be like, I'm really fucked up. You know, I got demons, I got substance abuse issues, I got uh, ADD, I have depression, I have anxiety. Post-pandemic, 
all of us have everything. Right. And um, it also got to the point where I felt as though I had overexposed myself. I was talking too much about myself and it was allowing people to form these uh, kind of weird parasocial relationships with me where they didn't know what my favorite color was or what my, my favorite breakfast was, but they knew that I struggled with drinking or they knew that I had had abusive relationships. I was like, okay, I, I think it's time to go in another direction. And I was so sick of talking my, about myself. I wanted everyone else to talk about themselves. Yes. And, it, and it's kind of become the the cliche of just mining everything about yourself. And, yes. I, and doing this podcast, I often struggle with where is the line between that because uh, – you know, there are some people that I look at on social media and, I, and I'm just like, God, I wish your parents had given you a hug. Yeah. You desperate <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah. You, I am embarrassed for you. I know. And I'm so afraid that I'm going to be or I am one of those people and don't know it. Right. It's tough because there is that expectation now for all of us to be sharing at least the perception of all of ourselves online, yeah. to find an audience, to connect with an audience. I mean, I think everybody who has any sort of public platform does struggle with where those boundaries are. Um, but, you know, it, it was interesting because I flipped the script and I didn't talk about myself at all for the majority of this show. Um, but I started making solo episodes to talk about things that needed to be addressed. For example, I had a little bit of a conflict with Barstool Sports and I did an episode about sorority hazing. And so I spoke out about my own situation, getting kicked out of my sorority, and then more recently about my abortion. Um, but I came to realize did that... Did you have your uh, abortion in the middle of the sorority house and that's why they kicked you out? Exactly. They were like, get out of here, you dirty skank. Plus I was a brunette <laughs> and a Jew. And in Southern <laughs> California, they were not used to any of that. And they were like, what were we thinking? accepting you. Um, but it's been this interesting, you know, on the topic of balance, I've come to realize that the more I speak out about myself, the more it inspires people to submit their confessions because they feel like they're going to be safe with me. And so I finally landed in this position where I'm learning, okay, it is safe for me to tell this story, to take up an entire hour by myself, um, because it's going to encourage other people to, to, to find the strength to do yeah. the same. So I've officially made it not the Allie Weiss show. Mm -hmm. um, it's more like I contribute when I feel like I have something to say, but primarily it's about my audience. Yeah. So um, if you're comfortable, yeah. talk about the abortion. It was a month ago? Yeah, it was really recently. It was a little bit over a month ago. Uh, I, I feel like there's no such thing as TMI on this show, so I'm just no. going to go for it. I got my period again yesterday, and I cannot tell you what a relief that was just to know that I had officially come out on mm -hmm. the other side and have, you know, by, by scientific biological standards, returned to normal. Um, I got pregnant completely unexpectedly, and right away I was freaking out not because of the pregnancy itself. And I also knew I was going to get an abortion right away. It wasn't a question. I'm just, I'm not ready. Um, but I was so afraid of what other people were going to have to say about it because of the fact that I'm age appropriate to have a child. I'm in a happy relationship. Meaning you're old enough as opposed to being a teenager. Yeah, yeah. You know, as much as I feel like a 16 and pregnant or like a child bride, I'm, I'm 28 turning 29 years old. Like there are tons of people who are like, this is the age where it's time to grow up. But I only moved out of my parents' house 
you know, less than a year ago, um, I had made the choice to stay with them to give me the freedom to travel throughout my 20s and create my weird show and, you know, spend my money on subculture parties um, and building building the podcast. And, you know, I sacrificed the freedom of living on my own to get that. Granted, my parents live in a beautiful apartment in New York City, not bumfuck, and we have a great relationship. But um, there is definitely some arrested development. Right. So now I live on my own. I'm totally financially independent. I'm in a serious relationship for the first time in four years. But because of that serious relationship, because of my age, and because of the fact that I've been really transparent online about the background that I come from, having parents who are not only emotionally supportive, but financially, you know, for so many years, and if I needed them to be now, I was like, holy shit, people are going to rip me to shreds. But I I really went through a very introspective process as I felt um, an alien invading my body. I Pregnancy did not suit me. I was really sick, nauseous, hormonal, mood swings. And instead of really focusing on the, the baby itself or the, the massive cells, let's call it itself... I couldn't stop thinking about, yeah, sure, people might say all these things about me, but someone in my position is actually the perfect person to be able to stand up and speak about this. Because speaking about my abortion is not going to lead me to lose my job. It's not going to get me ostracized by my community, disowned by my parents, affect my ability to find love again. In fact, speaking about my abortion, is, this is crazy to say, it, it like bettered my career. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like My career is to speak out about things that other people can't and do it with a face and a name. And um, I was scared shitless putting my story into the public sphere. But there was also this weird gut feeling of like, this is what you were meant to do. It completely remixed the word taboo for me. For years, I had been talking about, you know, every subject that was considered sordid and out of the ordinary. But now we were dealing with something that wasn't niche or subculture. It was an, an issue that affects millions of women, no matter what kind of background you come from. And it was almost like in choosing to terminate my pregnancy, I was reborn because I was able to really think about, okay, who do I want to be, you know, in the public sphere? What what kind of role model do I want to be for the long haul as I'm growing out of my 20s and into this next chapter of my life? And I'm really happy to say that the response has been overwhelmingly positive, movingly positive. And putting out that episode is what got me to convince dozens of women to submit their stories to me for the uh, the community-sourced episode that I put out right after that. And... Um... Was this the first time you'd experienced uh, getting an abortion? Yes, yes. It was the first time, um, you know, like I mentioned, I I had worked very hard to achieve independence from my parents. And my mother is deeply feminist and deeply liberal, but uh, came up in 80s corporate culture. She's a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And in getting taken seriously as like the only woman in the office, you really had to strip yourself of any and all femininity. Uh, and so her her ideas of of what women should be saying and doing publicly, she really believes in like actions speak louder than words, like mm-hmm. climb the ranks because you're good, because you're smart, because you're tough. Don't talk about your abortion. And I knew that I wanted to talk about it. I was like, I really don't need that voice in my ear. I also didn't really tell my friends because I didn't know who who else had had an abortion at that point. No one talks about it. And I was so afraid that they were going to project their own worries and neuroses onto me. So aside from my boyfriend, who, you know, I'm, I, I think 
whatever higher power is up there, collective consciousness is up there every single day for the fact that I have him. But it was a really isolating process. And uh, going, fe- feeling how alone I felt being who I am, I like can't even imagine what that would feel like for somebody who was 19 and in one of the various states. And having to keep it secret and maybe yeah. cross state lines. Oh, my God. Worry about being prosecuted. Insane. Oh, so insane. Insane. <clears throat> what are some moments during it that you did not anticipate where you can kind of paint a picture for somebody who's never gone through that maybe things that surprised you yeah or were really difficult obviously the entire thing was probably difficult yeah um to to help kind of um help somebody who will never have that understand what a woman going through that experience is i think abortion and motherhood are painted as very black and white Either in regards to abortion, you are staunchly pro-life or you are staunchly pro-choice, meaning like you have the abortion, you feel no shame, no remorse about it. Like you're a tough feminist versus you're a traditionalist. Similarly with motherhood, I think it's like there's this idea that you're not ready to be a mother until you are. Like one day you wake up and you're old enough or your biological clock starts ticking or you find the right person or you're making enough money. Uh, It's a very, very complex swamp of feelings. And I was so surprised at how muddled I felt. Again, I was very confident in my decision to get an abortion, but I didn't realize like how much of a failure as a woman it would temporarily make me feel. Meaning like, not that I felt I was a failure for getting the abortion. I think every woman deserves Mm -hmm. the right to get an abortion. It's, It's a medical procedure and that's that. But I had this moment of standing in the shower and like being naked and kind of touching my belly and, and thinking, okay, is there something wrong with me? That I'm 28 years old, I got impregnated by somebody I love, and I do not want this baby. And there's no part of me on like a deep biological, physical level that feels ready to carry this child. That makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, am I... Mean, I... The, 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 this makes sense in that your brain would attack you in that way. Right. And make me feel like I wasn't feminine enough or I wasn't womanly enough or or questioning like, I don't know. And I tried so hard to get in touch with myself like that. And it, it just wouldn't happen. And eventually I came to realize that that complete lack of attachment to my pregnancy was the concrete sign I needed that it was not right to bring that baby into the world. Because, you know, the argument against abortion is it's a selfish thing to do. It's a hundred times more selfish to bring a child into the world when you're not equipped to have one or when you don't want it. You know, growing up in the private school system in New York City, I knew plenty of kids who had every single resource in the world, anything that they could want on a materialistic level. But their parents were totally disinterested engaged. Their parents were on their own path to whatever they perceived success to, to be, or or they were just self-interested. And perhaps they didn't tell their children to their face, you know, like, you're a nuisance and, and you're mm-hmm. a roadblock in my life. But those were kids the kids. Oh, yeah. And those were the kids I knew who, who had drug problems, who had psychological problems. Like, I fucking hate this idea that, like, drug addiction is something that either happens to, like, a fully grown rich dick on Wall Street or, like, somebody who lives in a, in a very impoverished area. It was, like, the kids that were 
abandoned, who had all these resources but didn't know what to do with it, didn't have any guidance, those were the kids I knew who were really fucked up. There's a, an amazing book by uh, Dr. Janice Webb called Running on Empty, and it's about emotional abandonment. It's a really, really profound and helpful yeah. book. Yeah. And I just knew that where I was at in my life, despite checking all of these boxes on the surface, there's so much I need to accomplish on a creative level as an actor, as a writer, as a public speaker. So many things I want to say that I need to say before I feel ready to give my life to another person. Mm -hmm. And so it was so painful feeling as though I had somehow failed as a woman. But then coming out of that and realizing that my complete lack of detachment was actually the answer that I was really looking for was amazing. Still, what are some of the things that the mean voice in your brain told you to, to tell you you were selfish? Yeah, it 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 didn't tell me I was selfish as much as it was just like, <laughs> like you're I'm, not. I'm imagining what my brain would tell me. Yeah, if I, if I went through that. Yeah, so please, that's no, not no. me calling you selfish. It was so. fine. I think if anything, just kind of the the quietness and the and the emptiness spoke a thousand words. It was like, why am I so numb? Why am I so disconnected? Am I a bitch? Am I selfish? Am I like a a a bad feminist, a bad woman. Like, you know, I usually don't associate with any of these overarching stereotypes of like what a woman should and shouldn't be. I'm complex and that's that on that. But I think when you're in this situation, especially a situation that you know so many women work so hard to get to through IVF, through prayer, through Chinese medicine and acupuncture. I mean, so many women are so desperate to get pregnant. I got pregnant one of the only times I've ever had unprotected sex. You know what I mean? And for the record, I took plan B and it didn't work. That really? happens sometimes. Did you try plan C? I, did you have? I should have called you. I should have called you and asked for the plan C. Um, but no, I think that, that the guilt that I felt was was mainly like, why am I so empty? Why am I like bottoming out like this when I'm in a position that people are dying to get to? And and that kind of feeling of emptiness really remind me of uh, what my depression used to feel like when it was at its lowest. And so I'm very glad that that only lasted for a small period of time. But more than me feeling uh, selfish, it was just like questioning why I didn't feel anything at all. How did you, and just switching topics now, unless there's uh, other stuff you wanted to to share about No, that. I, I feel like we covered that okay. pretty well, yeah. Uh, when did depression become an issue in, in your life? And it sounds like it's kind of under control now? Yeah, I worked really fucking hard to get it under control. And, you know, again, something I've been very candid about when talking about my privileges, like... My parents were able to afford, how old am I now, 28? Like 23 years of therapy. I was in therapy for as long as I can remember, just like classic downtown neurotic Jewish things. Like you're born, you go into therapy. Um, Not all for the same set of reasons. When I was younger, I was afraid of mascots and men in masks. And I was also really afraid to shit. Hilariously, my brother, who was born five years after me, had the exact exact same problem where he was afraid to shit. We went to the same child psychologist who cured both of us, but we, we laugh. Shit like in public bathrooms or even in No, just like poop period. 
Yeah. We what, would was the, what was the fear? I, I don't know. I don't know. Like my mom tells me that we were afraid that it was going to like hurt, that we had like a bad experience mm. one time where it hurt and we didn't want to experience that again. But what are the chances that I went through that? And then five years later, my brother went through that. And we laugh being like, obviously it's my mom and dad's fault. But, you know, my parents are a little bit more uh, traditional, sweep it under the rug. They laugh it off, mm-hmm. you know, oh, everything's our fault, right? Um, it, that's that's a whole different thing that I've never actually really gotten into as an adult. But, um, you know, I took a break from therapy for many years. And then when I was 15, I re-entered for depression, for anxiety, fear of the dark. I had mismanaged ADD for so many years and I didn't get that under control until I was like 24. Very, very recently, I fucked school up. I was a terrible student. I couldn't focus. Um, I was just kind of dismissed as like a drama queen who, who, cared about frivolous things and not about academia. But for as long as I can remember, I feel like I've just been crawling out of my skin and um, too big for myself. You know, the image that I always use with my therapist is you're pouring coffee into the tea, into into the coffee cup and it overflows and it keeps overflowing. It keeps pouring and it keeps overflowing. I'm too much for myself or I describe myself as the wheel of fortune. Like I have so many colors, so many interests, so many different shapes and sizes. I've always felt like I fit in everywhere and nowhere. And I've talked about this a bit on other podcasts. Um, I went through puberty really early. Like I was like nine when it started. Oh my God. And I became a version of what I look like now by the time that I was... You're how tall? uh, 5'10". 5'10". Yeah. Nine or ten. Years it didn't old. happen that early. Um, the height kind of finished going into high school, but like huge boobs. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, that those were there by the time that I was twelve, fully. And um, I was always taller than all of my classmates. My face shape was more mature than all of my classmates. And you know, I mean, the hy- hypersexualization started so so early by peers, adults, peers, teachers, my parents' friends, walking down the street to school, subway stations, men in unmarked vans. I mean, it it felt unescapable before I even understood what sex was, before I understood what it meant to be a woman in a sexualized body. All I knew is that I like woke up one morning and I just wasn't safe. Um, And people were treating me in a way that I wasn't asking to be treated. And even, which happened soon after, when I resorted to wearing like oversized clothes everywhere and really trying to cover myself up, being a tall woman with really thick eyebrows and an angular face, I mean, people would just not leave me alone. So obviously that was just plain terrifying on the walk to and from school. But within the academic environment, there was all of this pressure on me to be a role model, be a leader, act older, just because I looked older. Mm -hmm. And it created this set of expectations that I simply couldn't meet. I had learning disabilities that nobody knew about then, um, but I quickly learned to be eloquent. I read a lot, I talked a lot, and I was like, okay, I need to be able to talk myself out of any situation, whether that's in an act of self-defense or to seem like I know what the hell I'm doing when I really don't. So I was sped through childhood, not because I didn't have a great situation with my parents at home. I mean, as with any family, we totally had our bullshit, like, and it mm-hmm. still is there even to today. But primarily the issue was I just never had a chance to be a kid. And I define childhood as being free of worry, free of expectation, free of anxiety um, about just kind of being able to think that the world is like a magical place. To feel and safe. To feel safe. 
never have I felt safe in my life. And um, I think that going through those feelings led to the position that I'm in now, which is feeling safe in quite literally any environment around any kind of person. I've worked really hard to turn that into an asset. But it was really tough for me for the majority of my life. It's like a forced gym membership, not fitting in, having to really examine the world, go deep into ourselves. And I think it can go kind of one of two ways. If, if, If like we get help and begin to realize that there's a connection there and that it can be a currency that is valuable in terms of meaning and purpose and and human connection. But if we keep it to ourselves, we just go further underground, further into our head, and we don't even realize that the self-obsession itself is the biggest hurdle to overcome. Oh my God. I was so narcissistic for so long. You know, I just thought that like the sky was falling onto me and me only. And a lot of that was because I didn't know what the hell was going on when it was happening. Like I had to learn as things were actively happening, meaning that I, I didn't really understand how dissociated I had become from my body until two years ago. Um, and it, it took so much therapy and hallucinogenics and, you know, watching documentaries and reading certain things to kind of realize that I had risen out of my body years ago and I had two selves. I had public me who I frequently described as a skeleton with like a layer of silicone skin on it, um, which was a fully formed personality, but it was not mine. And then there was who I was when I was alone, um, the theaterish, you know, bookwormy, quiet, sensitive, shy girl that I was as a child, but I could not be that person if I wanted to be able to protect myself. Um, you know, and it's it I, I don't want people listening to think it was just a matter of like me walking down the street, like being pretty from a young age. I mean, I was like verbally sexually harassed by teachers in the middle of like my entire class in the eighth grade. Like what would they say? Just like making really raunchy sex jokes to me. And I'm sure, I mean, I don't remember, but I'm sure that I at that point felt like verbal ping pong was the way to deal with it. Being Mm -hmm. sassy, having a comeback. It's when I developed a sense of humor also. Um, This teacher ended up getting removed from my school. Apparently there had been issues with other students too, but like sex jokes in the middle of biology class to me and me only english was always the topic that i mean the uh the class that was like the only thing i was ever good at i always got perfect grades in it and then junior year i had a teacher who like deliberately lowered my grades because i wouldn't return his advances i had a parent of somebody who was in my grade um who owned a restaurant that i was a hostess at He and his wife at the time were also best friends with my parents. He regularly groped me in his restaurant. I felt as though I couldn't tell my parents because those were their best friends. Um, And I also just, again was processing what was happening as it was happening. Um, it, I don't want to you know, spend the whole episode right. going into this, but what I mean to say mm-hmm. by all of this is um, 
I, I've been depressed for as long as I can remember. And, you know, some of that does come from genetics. Some of it comes from mismanaged ADAD and, um, you know, subsequent anxiety. But I think that there was also this profound emptiness that filled me of just not understanding why I was the way that I was and feeling as though no safe spaces ever existed for me and being so longing for a childhood, but also mm-hmm. knowing that I could never get that back. Mm-hmm. As, as you're sharing that, I'm thinking that was your schooling. Yeah. That was your college yeah. Yeah. was the mask. Yeah. I think so many of us, that is where we pour all of our academic energy into is trying to figure out why it hurts to mm-hmm. be alive. Yes, that's beautifully said. Beautifully said. And, um, you know, I definitely went too far in one direction with it. When I was 15, I learned that I could use the way that I looked to my advantage and get into clubs. I started hanging out with promoters. I was like at Marquee with Calvin Klein models. And I weirdly felt more at home there than I did at school. Um, and it's amazing what you can get done before a one thirty curfew, you know? So that's when I started getting into drugs. I started getting into drinking. It felt really good to be around people who had real adult lives and were ambitious. And I just felt so trapped by the fact that I was still in school when everybody was already treating me like I was an adult. Um, so, did, did, I mean, you had to have experienced some really unsafe moments. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. When I look back on it, I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? Like, not what was I thinking doing that? I think every young woman in New York wants like a a glamorous alt life where they can Mm -hmm. go to the club and get everything for free and be hanging out with celebrities. But the fact that it never occurred to me that I could get so taken advantage of by hanging out alone with promoters, promoters that I later learned would put Xanax in champagne and would regularly drug girls. And I don't know if they were like, handing them out to rich men, but certainly introducing them to rich men, you know? By the time I was 15, the concept of danger, just everything felt dangerous to me that nothing felt dangerous to me. I look back on that and I'm like, really? Oh my God. And uh, I studied abroad in London when I was 20 and uh, it was really refreshing to get out of Southern California. I did not feel understood in school. And when I was there, I promised myself I was only going to make friends with locals. I wasn't going to hang out with any Americans. And many of those situations that I put myself into, agreeing to go out on dates with strangers, dating men who were 10 years older than me, what was a 30-year-old doing with a 20-year-old? And it's just, it's remarkable to look back and realize how I had no control over my impulses um, and nothing scared me. And I truly do not know how nothing bad happened to me. A lot of fucked up shit happened to me when I was really young. But ever since I kind of came into my adulthood, I've gotten out unscathed. And, you know, so again, it goes back to what you said is that it's like it's learning how to to use this stuff that happens to us positively or negatively. It's a total curse, but it can also become a really big blessing. And, you know, you you referred to numbness. And as, as you were just sharing that, it It occurred, you know, one of the casualties of numbness and our normal being fucked up is not being in touch with our body and not being in touch with our instinct. And, you know, pouring the energy into the mask just separates us even further from our instinct. Yeah. So how did you begin to unnumb yourself and get back into your body? 
It was a really long process. Um, like I said, I have been in therapy for a long time, but there came a point where um, I felt like I should be getting more from my therapy process considering how long I had been there. So that's really when I got into wellness. And I was like, okay, if talk therapy is not working for me, let's go woo woo. Um, and so in 2018, I decided to stop drinking. At the time, I thought I was an alcoholic, not because I was drinking so frequently, but because every time I was drinking, I was blacking out. And I would take, you know, one sip of vodka or tequila, and I would be like, I'm fucking superwoman. And that kind of impulsiveness that I already had, and that lack of boundaries, and that complete lack of fear would disappear even further. And so I was in situations where I was accepting random drugs, I was hitting random people's blunts, taking random pills, you know, asking to push the boundaries physically during sex, and waking up in the morning being like, what the fuck have I done? And that classic um, anxiety of everybody hates me, and I hate myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so I decided to give it up. I was stone cold sober from alcohol for eight months. And it was crazy. It felt like putting myself on an island with nothing. It, it felt like I was naked on an island. And that was the best thing I possibly could have done. Uh, it produces you to you. It does. And um, it, it was refreshing to be forced to get in touch with my own vulnerability. It was also refreshing to see how much I actually didn't need booze. Um, but I think the best takeaway I got from that was that I, it's not that I couldn't control my drinking, it's that I couldn't control my ADD. And I couldn't control my impulses. And I couldn't control, again, the boundaries. And eliminating my, that label of alcoholic from the equation allowed me to explore what it really means to have adult ADD much deeper with my therapist mm -hmm. and look for uh, help with that, both with medication, but also with yoga and meditation and uh, journaling and routine. And getting that under control was the first step for me in really digging super deep. And this is going to sound ridiculous to some people listening, but the big moment for me was actually watching Paris Hilton's documentary in 2020. Did that you ever does see sound it? Ridiculous. It does. And I know it does. I'm self-aware after all that yes. therapy. But long story short, the documentary is about how she was sent away to um, a reform school when she was 17, kidnapped out of her bed in the middle of the night, taken what? to Utah and locked away in this place for 11 months where she was like severely mentally and physically abused. Really? Never told a soul about it until the documentary, including her old family. And she gets really deep into how experiencing that trauma and then, what was it, two years after she got out of school, experiencing the trauma of having her much older boyfriend release their sex tape without her consent, she was like, I became a different person. I essentially rose out of my body and never came back. Mm -hmm. And watching that play out in front of me was the first time I had ever seen a narrative that looked like mine, that I knew was mine. And granted, I had, thank God, never gone to an abusive boarding school, but that concept of going through childhood trauma, having authority figures fail you, having people who are supposed to give you unconditional love fail you and not mm -hmm. understand you and have that result in this kind of fuck you attitude. Yeah, I'm um, going to move towards the mask 
right because to process this right. is uh, how do I even begin I don't even know it's there exactly and as a woman you know hypersexualizing yourself so that people focus on the way that you look and not the fact that you're dying inside that you're fearful inside I mean God bless Paris Hilton. Like, I never thought I would say that. But watching that documentary was the first time I ever saw a public narrative that looked like mine. I was totally incapacitated. And that's what really cracked me open. I, like, sobbed for a week straight. And that's um, so awesome. Isn't it wild how that it's, happened? It's like your soul taking a shit. Wild. Exactly. Yes. And then after that is when I started dabbling in hallucinogenics, which was also incredibly helpful. And um, Which I, ones? I took acid and mushrooms um, mm-hmm. a couple times over the summers of 2020 and 2021. Profoundly lovely experiences because I was really ready for them. And I imagine you were in a safe environment because it could backfire yes. if you're in a fucked up place. Yes, I um, I did it by a pool. Uh, in a upscale, beachy area of New York, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the most comfortable, safe environment you could possibly be in. But, you know, I think when I think about my teenage and young 20s drug experiences versus those, I I was ready for them. I was open. I wanted answers. And uh, I was ready to just kind of let it all go as opposed to using it for escapism. So I feel like I'm ranting, but no. that's, that's really how I kind of got to the place that I'm in now was uh, giving up the booze realizing what was left without all those distractions, and mm-hmm. then motherfucking Paris Hilton. <laughs> <laughs> when you, you were talking about uh, impulse control, and you, and you said that when you would be physically intimate, you would push boundaries. What did that look like, and did that change when you gave up uh, booze? What, what part of that are you able to say... This is a part of my real sexuality, or that was me acting out in some way. Yeah, um, I. If you're comfortable talking about, which I'm sure you are. There's really nothing I'm uncomfortable talking about, Um, (laughs) for better or for worse. Thanks, mom and dad. Uh, But I would ask for violence, uh, choking, hair pulling, uh, rough play, generally speaking, which are all still things that I like every once in a while. But I was asking for those things from people I didn't know or mm. like people I did know, but not well. That trust that you really need to establish in order to successfully play out like SNM fantasies was not there. I remember I was on a date with this guy um, and we were at a bar and I had a couple drinks in my system and I was just like, choke me in the middle of the bar. You know, we weren't even kissing. And he reaches over and he starts to kind of lightly do it. And I'm like, harder, 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 until eventually I pass out momentarily. And I mean, I thought it was hilarious at the time, but things like that, you know, um, where... If you, could, if you could go back in time yeah. and be your your buddy sitting right next to you. Yeah. You can't interfere, but you can talk to you. Yeah. What would you have said? To be honest... I'm really grateful for those experiences that I went through. I I think that had I not experimented as much as I did and I hadn't pushed boundaries as much as I did, I wouldn't know nearly as much about myself. And knowing that I did have those violent tendencies, but that I was looking for it in the wrong places suggested to me that maybe I did want to explore rough play during sex or I did want to be a submissive. 
now being in my first healthy relationship in four years, um, because we are so trusting of each other and we are so open and communicative and accepting, we are able to play with that dynamic. Such an amazing feeling. It's it is the definition of safety. Incredible. And so to me, so um, intimate. There's, there's yeah. no other word to describe it, but I've never felt so seen and so close to another human being than than when there's that open communication about what do you like here's what i like no judgment it's so freeing yeah it's unbelievable and there's so much safety that comes within asking to be hurt and now I realize, oh, hell yeah, point A leads to point B. I spent so many years being taken advantage of and feeling as though I was being uh, physically and emotionally hurt and just preyed on without my consent. Being in a situation where I'm asking mm -hmm. to be put in that submissive position is a deeply therapeutic experience. And I don't need it all the time. Every once in a while, it is something that tickles my fancy. But to be able to explore that with somebody who's like going to give me a kiss and be like, I love you at the end of it. I think that's a common misconception about uh, any sort of bondage or, or rough play mm -hmm. in sex is that a lot of people who aren't educated perceive it as being uh violent and you know it's, like there's something wrong right with you. exploiting your partner or there's a level of like desperation or a lack of self-respect that the woman has but the amount of respect for yourself you have to have in order to ask for what you yeah. want cannot be overstated yeah. and you know for for some people when they're living in that place of I have to imagine this thing that gets me off, but I can't share it mm -hmm. with that person. Oh it's God. such a lonely place Horrible. to be. You know? Horrible. And, and, and I know there are some people who the reality of it is they're in a committed relationship. Maybe they got kids and they've kind of hinted at it and it's been shut down by their partner. And that is, I don't, I, I don't know what to, um, say to that person. You know, not that it's my place to to say, but I, I just want to give him a hug yeah. and say, man, I, I feel for you. Sexual rejection often hurts way more than emotional rejection because that's when you're at your most vulnerable. It's the deepest part of you. You're physically naked, but you're also totally emotionally naked. And I, you know, I think a lot of women experience this, especially when they're a teenager and throughout their young 20s. But I went through so many sexual experiences where I had such a wall up. And I didn't realize I had such a wall up because I was invested in it. And I thought that my partner was attractive. And I'm somebody who likes sex and is very sexually confident. But there was such a, an energetic disconnect between us. I could never let myself go. The mm. amount of times that I faked orgasms with past partners, I have lost count. And that's something that I didn't come to the realization about until post Paris Hilton, when I was doing all of that crying and shattering of self and really getting to, to the root cause of why I felt the way that I did. I was so petrified of being taken advantage of or, or being made to feel lesser than or being the person who was on the shit end of the stick. I couldn't even let a partner let me come because to me, that was like a sign of weakness. I couldn't really? let myself go like that. And I noticed such a big difference when entering into my new relationship, um, building up that emotional trust and that emotional 
comfort and knowing that that person doesn't care what noises you make or what you look like or what you're asking for. Uh, They accept your cum face. Yes. Which, you know, it takes a, there has to be a strong level of trust for that to happen. Um, There is no attractive cum face. No, there isn't. Um, But, you know, I think it's it's the difference between squeezing your eyes shut when you know that's happening and Mm -hmm. staring at it proudly being like, that's my Mm -hmm. ugly cum face, you know, that's. That's my person. And and that might, even more than sharing a, a kink, is owning sharing the cum face, face. <laughs> the, the leg shaking, you know, all of this stuff that is like, you know, you're, you are a hair away from looking like you're having uh, epilepsy. Yes. Or an exorcism. Right. Which I guess coming technically kind of is. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, just to go back to your original question, I, I probably wouldn't have said anything to myself because for as painful as so many of my experiences were, I'm so grateful to have had them because something my partner and I have discussed on many occasions is we have both been through so much and have put ourselves into so many exploratory situations that neither of us is like, what else is out there? Or like, maybe I'd be getting something that I need from another person. Mm -hmm. There were so many rounds of that exploration um, and also coming to terms with what it is that we need, what we want, what we don't want, that that, in my opinion, is is really the key to worrying about a straying partner is like, it's not so much that you have to be able to give someone everything they need, but you have to be interested in knowing what that shit is mm-hmm. and, and listening to them when they talk and feeling as though you're giving an authentic version of yourself in return. Not having a wandering mind, wondering what it would be like to be with somebody else is winning the lottery. Oh, yeah. It's it's such an amazing feeling. Yeah. It's such a feeling of stillness and, um, I don't know, satisfaction. Yeah. I don't know what the words are for it, but... Yeah. Um, it's like a... It's a... <sighs> I, it, it really is hard to find the words for it, but I think that the best way that I can summarize it is like, I think that there's this idea when you meet the right person, it needs to be this like uncontrollable crawling out of your skin passion that you're obsessed with this person that you can't think about so anything the other, opposite. right? That's what I'm saying is that like, I was so shocked by how calm and cool and collected I felt throughout our entire quote-unquote courtship, if you want to call it that, and into the situation that we're in now, there was no feverishness. There was no hysteria. There was profound attraction. There was immense care and eventually love, but not obsession. Neither of us sits around all day, you know, scratching ourselves like a junkie thinking about what the other person is doing. And I think when you found the right person, you no longer walk on eggshells. You're no longer having what I call that domino brain or the hamster wheel brain where you the just, mask. The mask. Who do I need to be right. to precisely. keep this alive? Precisely. Right. I think a little mystery is good in any situation, but there's there's no concern about needing to like be the perfect woman or be the perfect man. And I wish that I could just shout that from the rooftops that I don't know why we've been conditioned to believe that it's only real if it's hysterical. It's actually the last lack of hysteria that has let me know that I'm with the right person. And and I think when we're in that place of we're trying to get to the healthy ideal, whatever that is, we think we need to be more when in reality we need to shed shit, the idea of who we need to be, that we need to please everybody or be spectacular when in reality it's, it's just you know, not hiding, 
being willing to be judged by saying, this is the real me. So you know, true. I'm terrified going to a restaurant with couples I've never met before. And I'd really rather stay home and watch a documentary about serial killers. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you something. Obviously, it's different, you know, uh, being a woman versus being a man. But was there a particular moment in your life when you were entering into perhaps a new decade or a new era for yourself where you found yourself really you found yourself really inhabiting yourself, if yes. you know what I mean by yes. that, where that quiet confidence came to you with more ease, where you didn't feel the need to try as hard, where you didn't feel the need to hide as much. Was there a particular moment you can identify where that happened for there, you? There were two. The first one was was getting sober from, from drugs and alcohol, and that got me about halfway there, but processing uh, childhood incest mm-hmm. was the the real big piece of the puzzle because I had always minimized it and kind of blamed myself. Uh, and it wasn't until I gave way to it, not throwing my mom under the bus saying, you know, she's a monster or whatever, but just saying, what, what am I feeling? And setting boundaries, setting Huge. boundaries, cutting people that give me stomach aches that I feel dread around getting back into my body, getting back in touch with my intuition and, and and silencing the voice in my head that says, you're a terrible son because you don't want to talk to your mom. But instead saying, no, that's okay. Yeah. You know, and that the, all of a sudden the world felt safer, not completely safe. Right. You know, there's still that low level of dread and anxiety walking out the front door to what might be. Uh, but that that was huge and i don't believe that i would be able to be in a monogamous committed satisfying relationship if i hadn't started protecting myself because part i think when you're going around wearing the mask thinking who do i need to be to keep that person happy you're so out of touch with your needs that it that person having needs is just too much. Yeah. And you oh, don't yeah. realize you're feeding the monster by right. not having difficult conversations and saying, hey, when you said that, that hurt my feelings. Right. You know? Right. That fear of responsibility and understanding where my baseline responsibilities are as a partner and where am I taking on unnecessary responsibilities for that person's feelings? Yes. For me, like I said earlier, just figuring out how to break down this narcissism that I didn't even know I had, which wasn't me thinking that I was the center of the universe because I was some sort of hot shit. It was really just being so out of control it's survival of the way that I was feeling and, and feeling like whatever I was dealing with was a hundred times worse than what anybody else was dealing with. And I look back on it now and I'm just like, oh, you know, it's like painful to look it's back. It's so and not like, graceful. It's horrid and it's embarrassing. And I don't get embarrassed about very much, but that is something that I get embarrassed about. I was like, Jesus Christ, Ali, like you really thought that that was worse than what other people are going through? Like, yeah, sure. I felt absolutely suicidal at certain points in my life, but like, why? Because, you know, like people hit on me when I was nine or like I, I had mental health issues that were out of control. People have been through way worse. Um, so it was just one of the happiest days of my life. I can't pinpoint when it was, but absolutely one of the days, the best days of my life was when I realized that like, 
I, I'm no one. You know what I mean? That like everybody struggles, that like struggle and suffering is communal and that my problems are no worse than my anybody insides else's. are 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 not special. Yes. You know? Yes. Who I am, what I bring to the universe has a special quality yes. to it. But my struggle, yes. me having a struggle oh, is so humbling and so is. refreshing. And I felt like I lost a hundred pounds on that day when I was able to come to that realization. So am I allowed to ask you a follow up question because it's your show? Uh, yeah, and but before you do that, there there is one other thing that sure. I uh, wanted to say is um another time that my support group helped me in processing that you know my my recovery from that trauma was so ungraceful and embarrassing and i had an epiphany as i was beating myself up about this i realized i am just leapfrogging from the shame of what had happened to me as a child to the way I'm processing it. And I need another level of forgiveness to say, you're a human being. Yes, it, you were a bit of an ungraceful embarrassment, um, but forgive yourself. Move on. You're yeah. heading in the right direction. Yeah. And so I try as 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 I recover imperfectly, use those as opportunities to say, nobody... Nobody has ever flagellated themselves into being the person they've wanted to be. 100%. You can make a note of, you know, where you've fallen or fallen short and say, you know, I'm going to try to do better next time. Note to self about this. Forgive yourself and move on. Yes. 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 What was your, your follow-up question? Um, as I mentioned, the process of getting back in touch with my lost child and my lost childhood um, has been ongoing and at times very difficult. And I would like to know if you went through a process of either making amends with your younger self or um, as you get older, feeling more okay with embodying those qualities of childhood that we discussed, of feeling free, of feeling Mm -hmm. at ease, uh, creative, not having the weight of the world on your shoulders. Um, Because when you are so young and you are dealing with these things that you're just absolutely not equipped to handle, especially in a situation like yours. Um, I think part of the process of healing, and this is one of the very good things that I learned in an otherwise fucked up acting school, was you have to hold on to your inner child and your sense of play and not being afraid of being embarrassed. So are there any things that were really impactful for you in kind of rejoining your inner child? Uh, You know, there was one moment when my uh, support group uh, after the meeting, we went trampolining. And, and here's a bunch of people in their 30s and 40s and 50s just being kids. I you know, we had pizza and it it was, um, I forget to be silly. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of us do. Yeah, it's uh, hard. It is hard. And, you know, that, that was a moment that, that stands out to me. Um, I think something that really helped me, and I don't remember who it was that suggested this, but when I was going through the worst of processing it and just felt so confused, I pulled out a picture of myself from that age. I I think I'm like eight or something in the picture. And I talked to it and I said, you know, hey, buddy. Uh, And the tears just just started pouring down. I'm like holding them back right now. (laughs) And it was the first time I stopped seeing myself 
as a tiny adult and as an innocent little boy yeah. who was confused and just wanted to please yeah. people. And and that was a that was a big moment to understand the difference between adult me and little me and that that little me is still in there somewhere and he, he wants to feel safe. Yes, and choosing play as an adult and choosing the potential for failure as an adult and situations that are uncomfortable it's so hard to do that. But I think, you know, there's a reason that we chose career paths as performers and as storytellers. And I think something a lot of people don't realize about how comedy about comedy is how serious it is oh, yeah. and how regimented it is and N- self-flagellating. Nobody takes themselves more, more seriously, seriously than, than comedians. comedians. It's so true. It's like you have to be so hard on yourself and, and to a certain degree fucked up to want to enter into this industry. Um, but, you know, they're also we're very fortunate that there's also so much room for play. Um, but I find that the same way that like happiness is a Western construct and like you have to wake up every morning and choose happiness and choose the decisions and the and the choices that are going to lead you to feel good. I believe in waking up every day and choosing play. And that's another huge thing yes. about my new relationship that was a massive breakthrough for me was telling him essentially, look, I know I'm very competent. I know I'm entirely self-sufficient that like I don't have a boss. I run my own life. I, I know that I do a good job of keeping my shit together. But with in a relationship dynamic, I want to be the baby. I want to be taken care of. I want somebody who is going to rub my head and let me curl up in their lap and who's going to make decisions for me. It's it's almost fetishistic in, in the emotional way too yes. of just, I want to be very held emotionally and physically yes. and I want to be babied. And that's something that I have never asked for before in a relationship because I have been too afraid of being mm-hmm. seen as weak or dumb or incompetent. And just also, I felt like a bad feminist or a bad woman asking for those things. But right away in saying that that's the dynamic that I was looking for, luckily, I had found somebody who also really wanted to be the provider and wanted to be more of a dom. This is somebody who's like very successful, but also like brilliant, works in tech and computers. Mm -hmm. And it's just uh, this person has more knowledge than I can ever hope to have and is really is eager to to be in a situation of having to care for another person and not just thinking about his own internal world and this weird subset of the dark web that he exists in. Mm. Um, but I, you know, the sense of play that I've been able to have within that because I asked for it has mm. been really, really life-changing. And, like, it's, it's softened me in a yes. lot of ways. Love is not overrated. No. It's really it's, not. It's not. And softness is... Um, vulnerability, whatever you want to call it. I don't believe that there we can achieve a consistent feeling of peace without the decision to be soft, without the decision to give up cynicism, to um to ask to have our head rubbed, to lay our head in someone's lap. You know, there I have a female friends in my support group who I really, really trust and they trust me and after i went through my divorce um i guess it was six years ago um i didn't get into another relationship for a while and um and i knew it was healthy for me to be alone but there was a part of me that really craved intimacy not sexual intimacy um 
and I called one of my friends up and, and I said, would it be okay if you came over and we watched a movie and I laid my head in your lap? Yeah. And you and you stroked my head, and it felt so embarrassing to ask of for that. Course. But I've been going to these meetings for ten years, multiple times a week, and yes. I knew that that was a healthy right sized need. Yes, and and I said, you feel free to tell me if that's too much, and she's like, no, and it felt so amazing, yes. and that was a part of taking care of that little that little kid, and yes. and that. You know, to me, happiness is a byproduct of the other stuff that we do in our lives. Often, a, a lot of it spiritual based, a lot of it taking care of our needs. And peace to me is doable. Mm-hmm. Happiness is like the weather. Yes. It comes and goes yes. when it's there. I'm super grateful to yes. have it, but Bask I don't yeah. expect happiness. Right. But Peace is, right. is, I think, is reasonable. Yes, and a sense of contentment. And yeah. I, I just wish that more people could understand that you can ask for what you need on an emotional level, especially from people of the opposite sex, whether it's in a romantic dating situation or even just platonic as friends, as a support system. You can ask for those things, and it's not creepy. It's not weird. It's not weak. It doesn't have to be filled with ulterior motives. I, This is something I'm saying as someone who only recently learned this. I was so all consumed with maintaining my image of being like a tough girl, a tough bitch, mm-hmm. a wisecracker, someone who was strong. And I think especially, as I mentioned, living out so much of my 20s online and working you know, for various media companies and on TV shows, I had developed this image and this reputation of being like a tough broad, which I was happy to be because I thought that there was a need for it, especially pre-pandemic. But I I had no um, disconnect between my professional self and my personal self. Oh boy, is that a recipe for disaster. Yes. I am my product. Horrible. I spent years being like, I am the walking, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I am filled with my brand at all times. Like I am the walking billboard for my brand. And it caused me so much pain and so much confusion. And I felt guilty anytime I wanted to get in touch with my soft side, because not only did I feel as though I was like letting myself down, I thought that I was letting 26,000 people down also, and my employers down and what a fucked up way of thinking. But I think, um, any, not just any creative person. I mean, we all have masks, as you mentioned in the workplace or in social situations, but I, I think everybody (laughs) needs to realize that there, there's not, there is no pressure to be the mask at all times. The mask serves its purpose. The mask is there to protect us and to allow us to be our best selves in a scary world. But the key to not happiness, but contentment, as we mentioned, is figuring out how to take the mask off mm-hmm. when you come home. And and I think one of the kindest things that we can do for ourselves is to let go of somebody's expectation for us to keep wearing our masks. For a lot of us, it's people, uh, you know, family of origin. For, for some of us, you know, maybe it's somebody that we're in a relationship with or a group of friends we have. They don't like us changing the role. Mm-hmm. They don't know their lines mm-hmm. in the play when we improvise yes. and all of a sudden we're a different yes. character. And 
if you can walk through the pain of letting other people down because you refuse to keep wearing that so mask. So hard, but so necessary. So necessary. I don't believe that, that that we can ever be comfortable in our skin or feel peace if we're not willing to do that. Yes. Widespread fear of change. It's really real. Yes. And I think people think fear of change and they're like, oh, leaving a job that you're unhappy right. at or a relationship that's stagnant or moving. But it goes way deeper than that. It's like... Mm messing up and remixing the roles that you play in society in the wider community and in Mm -hmm. your more intimate communities. And I think a lot of people feel that fear of being terrified to let anyone down. And say that hurt my feelings when you said that. Yeah. Or even just saying no to shit that you don't want to do. I I was deluded into thinking that I was so profoundly self-confident when I was younger, again, because my professional mask was somebody who didn't give a fuck. And professionally, again, I don't give a fuck. But personally, I give so much of a fuck. And I was so petrified of of anybody being disappointed in me or feeling like I didn't show up for them. And working through that, there were definitely some moments where, you know, you have to swallow the disappointment and you have Mm. to repair it, which is very consuming. Um, But once you realize how not difficult it is to say no, it... It can be addictive. Yeah. And, and and they don't die, the person mm-hmm. you say no to. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're adults. Yep. Tomorrow's a new day. Next Tomorrow's week is a, a new, new week. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows? You maybe even help them on their path to growing into the person they they want to be. Yeah, especially for women. I mean, again, not to make generalizations, but I've definitely seen that women are very inspired by women who are willing to say no, or who are willing to put up those boundaries or be like, I'm not going to play into your expectations of me or society's expectations or a man's expectations. Mm -hmm. There definitely is a domino effect there. To say, you know what, that was inappropriate, what what you said there. And I've been the person who has said the thing that was inappropriate and had no fucking idea. Mm hmm. You know, I look back now and I'm like, oh, my God, just because I assumed I was comfortable talking about something, why the fuck would I assume that they're comfortable talking about that? And the more we don't speak up, the more people are genuinely clueless. And being clueless doesn't mean that you're malicious or that you have bad intentions. It's like, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion online, on Twitter, Instagram, on blogs, whatever, about like how men don't do enough for women and men are lazy and men are superior or think that they're superior. And sure, I'm, you know, a lot of that is true. But there's also this issue where women don't want to speak up for what they want. They want men to just figure it out. Mm-hmm. And it never works. And I, yeah. I think that that could be applied to so many situations outside of just relationship dynamics. We all have to ask for what we want. And that requires being honest with ourselves about what it is that yeah. we want, which requires a lot of shattering the ego to get to. But it yeah. is so profoundly worth it. It is. It is. Uh, so before we wrap up, um, your your podcast is called Tales of Taboo. Just give me a taboo moment from your life just to end on something ridiculous and and frivolous and embarrassing oh my god all of it um okay i went to a sex club before the pandemic this must have been in late 2019 and i was so nervous going that i had taken a xanax and when i got there they were passing around champagne and i drank a lot of that and i just got myself into like a completely obliterated state and there were highs and lows of being at this sex club one of the highs or the Did funny you go there moments with a partner or by I, yourself? I went there by my well with a friend of mine so we went there together but then went off and had our 
own adventures. One of the funny situations was kind of being blacked out and waking up and having like this massive hard fake tit in my mouth and seeing this woman um, was wearing like weed shaped nipple pasties and like her and her husband spoke Spanish and they were exotic. And I was just like, how did I get here? This is hilarious. And I'm never going to do this again. But there was also this moment of like walking around and being in this environment where you're allowed to express yourself and ask for what you want and be whoever you want to be, but you're still comparing yourself to everybody else. And you're still mm-hmm. worried that you're not beautiful enough or that you're not going to fit into whatever dynamic is happening. And I was like, wow, I am at an orgy right now in the penthouse of a really nice hotel. And it seems like a free for all, but I have never felt more insecure. And I share this story because although I ended up having that weird threesome with the Spanish couple and I had the fake boob in my mouth and, you know, it was funny and ridiculous. um, I I think that even in the most taboo situations, even in the wildest, most off, you know, Mm -hmm. off the beaten path situations, everybody is still struggling to find a place and get by. And so that's what I try to portray in my show is that, yes, I'm talking to people who have lived some of the most outrageous and outlandish experiences, but when you cut away what it is that they're actually doing, everyone is just trying to find their way home and they're on the same path to doing that. You know what I mean? So every rave that I've been to, every fetish party, every sex party, every Trump rally, every, you know weird fish toss in Alabama, every strange environment that I've put myself into where people are like, this is fucking hilarious. It's like, yeah, it is fucking hilarious. But I'm also trying to show that like all of us are just trying to find a sense of being a part of something bigger than ourselves. And we all feel horribly uncomfortable within that we process. all think the shade of our butthole is wrong yes exactly or mm. that you know our boobs aren't big enough or mm. that you know our bush isn't groomed the exact right way i mean there's always going to be something and i think that as you and i have have awesomely discussed this entire time like the only way to deal with that is just to be honest and i i hope that you and i sitting here and speaking so candidly will inspire other Mm. people to not be afraid to i don't know go to the sex club or try to find their inner child maybe at the same time sweet thank you so much (laughs) your podcast is called uh tales of taboo uh where can people find you on social media my instagram and twitter and tiktok are all at ali weiss world w-e-i-s-s and tales of taboo is available wherever you stream your podcast thanks so much ali thanks for having me I don't know if it's fitting or not, but we recorded that a few days before the uh, Supreme Court uh, document was was leaked. Uh, so felt like a, the right time to air that episode. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's jump into some surveys. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by somebody who calls themselves a part-time shit show. You know, I think if you put in the work, you could be a full-time shit show. I know that's always been your dream, um, but you're never going to find out if, uh, you know, your shit shows three, four hours a day. You put on an eight-hour shit show, and you're going to find out if you got the goods. Share a thing you love. Rolling my dog's belly fat between my fingers. It's like giving her a Xanax, and it's tactily so satisfying. We could sit there for hours, and we would be happy as clams. I do that with Gracie, too. She was a, a, uh, a mom before I met her, before I met her, before we were introduced it was a blind date uh and so she's got you know some of that some of that belly fat left and uh when i scratch her belly sometimes i'll do that same thing and uh yeah it's so weird the things that we get pleasure from with our dogs like i I know i'm not the only one that kind of enjoys my dog's bad breath so weird this is from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Vix Vapor Masturbator. be interesting to see where this one goes. Uh, he identifies as straight. He's in his 40s, says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He says some stuff happened, but he doesn't know if it counts. I don't remember being physically abused, but I was sexualized at an early age. I slept in my parents' bed till I was about 10. I remember them watching soft porn and discussing if I were pretending to be asleep or not. Yeah, uh, that is absolutely 1,000% uh, a form of sexual abuse. And if uh, Child Protective Services had been alerted to that, uh, you would have been removed from the home. Uh, I can only assume that they knew I was secretly watching through squinted eyes. They never engaged in sex while I was in bed with them, but I remember them making comments about what was happening in the movies they were watching. Also, mom used to take us kids to see R-rated movies all the time. My half-brother, who was about 15 years older than me, exposed himself to me and my sisters when he came out of the bathroom with a towel around his waist. When he saw us, he opened the towel for us to see him. He took me and my sisters to see Little Darling, star- starring Christy McNichol. I was eight. In the car ride home, he told me that if I had sex with Christy, my dick would be so small she would have to hold it for me. When my half-brother had his girlfriend over at the house, he would call me over and grab his girlfriend's face and say to me and ask me, don't you want to just fuck this face? He would also encourage me to grab the neighbor girls, same age as me, ass and pussy. I never did. I used to be I used to be angry that my parents failed to have boundaries for me and protect me from my half-brother. I met my half-brother years after he left our home. I stood head and shoulders over him and probably outweighed him by 70 pounds. Instead of feeling angry or vengeful, I felt relieved to see him. All those years I had been afraid of him, but when I saw him, he was just a broken-down, little pathetic man. Uh, he's been emotionally abused. My parents never told me that they loved me nor hugged me. When me and my sisters became adults, we initi- initiated verbal and physical affection with our parents. 
Most of the neglect came from dad. He always made me feel stupid and unwanted. When I saw The Exorcist on TV, I ran to my parents' room and cried. My mom said I was being silly. Uh, in parentheses, it's just makeup. My dad just shook his head in disgust that I would let a movie bother me. Many times when I would sleep in between my parents, they would yell and fight literally over me. I remember my dad saying that we, the kids, were like animals, and it was my mom's fault for not training them. My father also praised my best friend and teammate for his accomplishments in wrestling and never, ever acknowledged my performance as a wrestler. I feel and know that I am still dealing with self-loathing, love addiction, and much more. However, I'm glad that I'm beginning to understand how I got here and I'm working on myself. I'm not resentful. My parents did the best they could with what they had. Any positive experiences with abusers? I have a lot of great memories. My dad was an awesome storyteller and so funny. Mom lived a life of self-sacrifice to take care of us kids. I'm not minimizing my neglect, but I do feel like so many other people have lived through hell compared to my experience. Also, I do understand that my parents just didn't have the whole parenting thing mastered. I've been able to take the negative experiences as examples of what I do not want to do with my children. Even so, I've made some of the same mistakes with my own children, but I'm still working on it. Darkest Thoughts Whenever my wife leaves the house, I always think that she might get into an accident. It feels more like fantasy than worry. Whenever I see an attractive woman, I begin to, fantas I begin to fantasize about having a relationship and or sex with them. I also am on the lookout for a woman who is thinking the same way about me. Darkest Secrets I have set up accounts on dating sites but have yet to make a connection with anyone. Not sure if I would really go through with it or not. Uh, I started drinking after 25 years, secretly went away from the house. If I were found out, I would be let go from my job as a minister. Sexual Fantasy is Most Powerful to You I want a woman to desire me and to be romantic with me. I've used porn and masturbation as a coping skill, in the parentheses, I think. But I have found that what I want more than porn is human connection. I don't understand it all yet, but it's frustrating. I am married, but it feels so mechanical. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Um, I would tell the senior pastor that I resign. I'm tired of all his mind fuckery that has soured the whole ministry for me. What, if anything, do you wish for? To find out within myself what I need to feel connected. Boy, that is, that is such a big lifelong pursuit, but so, in my opinion, right on the money about what to focus on. And it's so easy to feel like, oh, if I just had more stuff or, you know, I was more popular or this or that, that that, that feeling of connection is going to come. But that, that never might be exciting. But for me, the feeling of connection has only come about through shared struggle and uh, a community of people with a, with a shared struggle. Um I wish to feel better about my wife. She really is an amazing woman and not to fantasize so much about others. Uh, to live a life being myself and not who I am supposed to be. Boy, those are some really great universal uh, desires. Have you shared these things with others? I've been in therapy for a little over a year. I've really come a long way and have been able to be compassion 
compassionate with myself really for the first time. And it's also so nice to have someone see and hear you. And he put see and hear in uh, capital letters. Yeah, man, that is, it's so connected what you said before about the wanting to feel connection. It's like, how can we feel connected if we don't feel seen or heard or we don't help the other person, people, uh, feel seen and heard? How do you feel after writing these things down? I love writing. It helps me to focus and learn more about myself. I'm still trying to figure this all out, but I'm going forward. You know what I think's awesome is that you're seeking and you, I imagine as a minister, you speak to people in your congregation. I love that you are doing the footwork that you're probably encouraging them to do. And I would think that that seeking and the struggle would make you a, a better, more compassionate minister. I just, I really hope that uh, you can stay sober because that sounds like it's a big, big hurdle and you uh, moving in the direction that you want to move. But uh, uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, none. Love it. Thank you. Uh, are there any chat room, group chat rooms related to the show? There is a forum, and you can access it through the our, our website, which is mentalpod.com. You'll see a little link there. And there's some, some really great people in the forum. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by Maz. And Maz writes, I love watching animals chew food. They are absolutely adorable. I love watching Misky, my dog, eat her food and making pauses to contemplate the backyard, like saying, yeah, this is good stuff. I am safe and loved. I do love. That's such a great moment when you see the wheels turning in your, in your dog's brain or any, any animal. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Fucked Up Cat. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts, she says. Uh, my f- mother and father would talk, grope, and perform sexual acts in front of me my whole childhood. Yeah, that is sexual abuse. Uh, They were very open about their sex life, especially my father, who would tell me how he satisfied my mother. Yuck. (laughs) I was no older than 10 when we had these conversations. I really wish that some parents would understand the difference between you being open about sex privately among appropriate people and you thinking that it's okay to do that around children. She's been physically and emotionally abused. I've had mental illness challenges from separation anxiety to BPD all my life. When I was upset or have any sort of downswing, my father would tell me I'm just being manipulative and trying to make my mother upset so I can get more attention and so she wouldn't be happy. When I would cry, he would smack my head and grab my shoulders and shake me, screaming at me to stop being so sensitive. And so ironic, in that moment, your dad is the one who is being overly sensitive. Your dad is the one who is the quote-unquote snowflake who can't handle things. Uh, 
he would tell me I was weak and that all I did was stress my family out and I would be better off gone. If I made him upset, he wouldn't talk to me for months as a little kid and adult. He would laugh in my face when I was trying to stand up for myself. We lived on a ranch uh, and he made me kill animals. Uh, and if I didn't, I was weak. He would tell me if he didn't have my siblings and I, then he would probably have killed many people. Holy fuck. He would also go into depth about how he would do it. He also told me that every man that wasn't him would try to kill me or rape me if I wasn't on guard. Wow. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Absolutely. He is very narcissistic and manipulative, but buys his affection, which is a very sadly quick emotion fix. He has given me many different great things like family vacations and paying for my car insurance as an adult. And also, when he wants to be kind, he can be very sweet, especially with my mother, who is my world. Darkest thoughts. I think about killing myself at least 4 to 50 times a day. How I would do it and what people would say when I died. I think about killing my father. I have since I was about 13 years old. My biggest fantasies are being raped in a gangbang and having the shit beaten out of me when I try to struggle. Darkest secrets. I've attempted suicide twice now, and if anyone found out, I'm afraid I would be fired from my job and looked down, down on by my family. I've had bulimia for eight years and have stolen thousands of dollars worth of food throughout the years and have dug through countless trash cans. I have sold my body online to people and do whatever they tell me to do to myself. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being raped by multiple people at once. Sharing that makes me feel ashamed and fucked up. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would just want to be able to talk to people and be open about my struggles. People think I'm quirky, but really, I'm so mentally fucked. Who wouldn't have mental challenges given the fucking nightmare of a childhood that you have been through? And you can talk to people. It, it might take a while to find those people who are safe, who are your emotional family, not your blood family. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for my three dogs and children to be happy all the time. I wish the man I've been in love with for many years will break up with his wife and be with me. I wish for my mind to be quiet for two seconds. And I wish to stop the binging and purging 10,000 plus times every fucking day. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. I've seen professionals, but my family makes me feel too ashamed to be consistent and to take meds. I'm afraid I am unfixable. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved that it is anonymous. You know what I say? When somebody shames you for taking meds or seeing a mental health professional, ask them where they went to medical school. And if they don't uh, say where, ask them to shut the fuck up. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're not weak or manipul manipulative. You're just a little sick. And I, I would even use the word wounded rather than uh, sick, because I think sick sometimes can, can have some, although I use that word sometimes, I think it can have some negative connotations. Um, but wounded for me is the perfect word to describe 
us when we're in the process of struggling to be the person that we want to be. And then finally, this is a list of loves from Claire. And uh, she writes, I love my partner so fucking much. I love how genuine and kind he is. And I love that his kind behavior is consistent whether other people are around or not. That is, that is the true test, what you do when, when nobody's looking. I love the patience and compassion he shows towards me. I do my best to manage my mental health, but I have a lot of internal turmoil and chaos. His stability is refreshing and grounds me back in reality. I love that when he sees a cool animal, he will openly gasp and tell me it's stunning. I love the way he saw a garter snake in our driveway a few times last year and still looks for it now, just in case his snake comes back. I love how much joy he finds in simple things like a good meal or a nap. He is easy to please. I love that I feel like a normal person around him. I don't know if it's a neurodivergence thing or a trauma thing, but a lot of the time I feel like an isolated freak who is completely unable to make human connections. With him, I feel like an actual human being. I say and do weird shit all the fucking time around him, and it doesn't matter because he says it does even weirder shit. I can be my full self around him, and I don't have to perform. I love that he always makes an effort to do the right things, even if he can't follow through, even though he makes a lot of mistakes and forgets things all the time. I always know that he's trying his best. I love his laugh. It's so rewarding. Hearing it still feels like winning the lottery, even though I've heard it almost daily for the last few years. I love that he struggles to unroll plastic wrap from the container and usually ends up angrily crushing the box, but he still chooses to go for the plastic wrap instead of foil anytime he needs to put food away. I love how he interacts with our pets. He sings to them and compliments them as if they can understand what he's saying. He's unafraid to outwardly express how much he loves them. I love his lack of pretentiousness, his honesty, and his genuineness. He is always himself, whether it's to his benefit or not. I spent a lot of time, quote, reading the room, unquote, and attempting to control the perception others have of me. He worries about sounding dumb or being unable to communicate clearly, but in general, he doesn't change himself to blend in with stupid people who don't actually matter. I really admire that and wish I could do the same. I love the way we work together in difficult situations. We're both extremely anxious in our daily lives, yet somehow in a crisis we're able to stay very calm, practical, and badass. I love his relationship with masculinity. He doesn't get hung up on whether or not he's man enough for shit, and he doesn't take it personally when I'm frustrated by the way men treat me. He's secure enough to be able to fully listen to me with compassion and empathy. I love that the first time we went to a sit-down restaurant together, he ordered two full meals for himself and ate both with zero self-consciousness. I love his ability to laugh at himself. I love that he reacted to me buying him an $8 stuffed Garfield with the same level of excitement he had when I bought him a $300 guitar pedal. And I love the way his eyes light up like an excited puppy every time I offer him a peanut butter cup. Those are fantastic. Wow, it sounds like you guys have a really a really nice relationship. Well, that is it for uh, episode 591. I think that's the number of this episode. But uh, hopefully I'll see some of you guys in uh, Minneapolis uh, next weekend. 
And uh, if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.